Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. Welcome to Connections. I'm Colleen Hood. Former professional ballerina Valerie Condos Field is our guest today. She's affectionately known by the scores of champion gymnasts that she's coached over her career, but she has absolutely no background in gymnastics. She never tumbled or flipped or played any type of organized sport, and yet she became a legendary Hall of Fame coach through curiosity, creativity, and attention to detail. Now, she had something happen in her life that changed her, and as she says, it changed her for the better. We're going to hear that story today and so much more on Connections. We're joined today by Valerie Condos field She is the former head coach of the UCLA women's gymnastics team. And speaking of that, that's how you're best known. It's for your decades worth of a career as a gymnastics coach. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, it was one of the most exciting and inspiring and innovative careers I could have ever imagined. And the truth be known, I never did imagine it because I was never a gymnast or a coach. or I did not grow up in the world of athletics. Really? I was a ballet dancer. I was going to ask how you became a gymnast, and I'm picturing like, oh, I was three years old, and my family put me in this. <laughs> it started with ballet. Right. <laughs> um, I was a professional ballerina, and I, uh, right out of high school, I did not go to college. I danced professionally, but I really missed going to school, and um, I heard literally via like the the universal grapevine that UCLA gymnastics needed a choreographer and a dance coach for their gymnastics team. And so without any hesitation, I just called up the head coach and gave him my credentials and they offered me a full scholarship to go to school to be their dance coach. So within a second, I literally just agreed and retired and moved to Los Angeles. That was 1982. Wow. (laughs) And somehow with your ballerina background, which, you know, the the choreography aspect of things, you can, you can, you know, put that into gymnastics. But overall, you became one of the most uh, winningest head coaches in NCAA history with your ballet background. Right. And, you know, I, in thinking about how that happened, it wasn't difficult. Well, first of all, they offered me the head coaching job in 1990. I was shocked, and I reminded them that I did not know the first thing about gymnastics. And <laughs> all of the instruction or mentoring I got was, we trust you that you'll figure it out. And so I was flying blindly. And it wasn't difficult to hire coaches that knew gymnastics. That was rather easy to do. But what I realized quickly was I knew nothing about what an athletic culture should look like. I did not know what it looked like to be a strong leader of a team. Um, I did not know how to go about starting to implement the foundation for what a team culture, a healthy team culture should be. And so there was a lot of trial and error along the way, like years of trial and error. Throughout all of that, you you looked to others, you looked into books, you looked uh, into other coaches and tried to um, go off of that. Right. And, you know, the, the thing that I thought was smart to do was to look to other head coaches that had been successful. The thing that I shouldn't have done was I just, all I did was look to the coaches that had won that fit into this paradigm of mine of what a head coach should be. 
And that was really a dictator-type coaching style where <clears throat> there is no middle ground. It's my way or the highway. And quite often, dictator-type coaches can be very demeaning and um, belittling. And I literally just thought, that's well, that's what it was going to take to be successful. So I, I mimicked them. And not only was I not successful and our team was not successful, but inside I just felt really crummy. It's like this is, this is not how what my life is supposed to be like on this earth is demeaning and belittling young adults or anybody. And quite honestly, it was at that time that <clears throat> I was questioning whether I was going to continue coaching or not, and I happened upon the book on leadership by the great coach John Wooden and his definition of success really hit me because he had won 10 national championships in 12 years as the men's basketball coach at UCLA. And his definition of success was simply success is peace of mind in knowing that you've done your best. Wow. And I thought that was so weird because it was like, no coaches are hired to win why doesn't he mention winning? Especially like f- for yeah, like a program like NCAA UCLA's basketball program, right? Hearing the coach say, "Well, you tried your best," right? I just don't imagine coaches saying that at that high of a level. Exactly, and it was a combination of his moral character that he was raised with and his faith—that very, very, very strong faith—and um, at that point when I. When I had, it literally was at that point that I had my biggest aha moment and I realized that success is peace of mind in knowing you have done your best. I had been trying to be somebody else by mimicking these other coaches. So I literally went back to my office and, you know, the catchphrase now is find your why or know your why. Yeah. And I had to figure out why was I going to coach? Why was I going to continue doing this? And the answer was so clear to me especially being brought up in the world of ballet that is very tough, very strict, very demanding. But we don't have a team culture in, in theater, in ballet. Um, and at that, in those years, there were no, even no competitions. Um, and so it was really clear to me that I was going to develop champions in life that were, were going to go out into the world and make the world a better place through sport. And that was my why. And then my how, how was I going to do that, was by really taking the time to get to know each individual student-athlete and help them become the best them that they could be within the four years that they were at UCLA. And because we were at UCLA and I could recruit some of the best talent in the world, I knew, I knew without hesitation that if I helped develop each one of them into this individual superheroes, that that champion mentality would translate to the competition floor. How and e- that's when we started winning. How easy was it for you to make that switch? Did you have to like de-learn a bunch of stuff or or was it just because it was so much more naturally yourself it was an easy switch to make? Yeah, that's a great question. I've never been asked that question. Um, I, it was easy for me because I think anytime it's internal and intrinsic in you and you, you know um, all you then have to do is have the courage to take that step forward. And, you know, my definition of courage is taking a step toward your goal without any guarantee of a result. Like the that. hard part was that I really was able to recruit 
some of the best athletes in the world. And quite often those athletes, they're thoroughbreds. You know, they're going to come in. They're going to challenge you. They're going to quite often not want to be a team player. They want to be the star. And how to, the hard part for me was how to incorporate and, and help them develop, like I said, into their, their best selves mm-hmm. while not diminishing their talent or their drive, um, but making sure the team came first. What about once you made this switch, did you reach out to past people in your program who you had been rough to? What was that like? Uh... Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, sadly, they didn't, they didn't really feel it because I think that was just the culture back then. Yeah, that's what they're you used know, they to. They didn't know any better. Yeah. But when they started seeing how I was coaching the, the, the current teams, um, a few of them said, you know, I wish I would have had you as my coach as you are now. Hmm. Um, you know, and that's, that hurts. <laughs> that's a little dagger to the heart. You know, you wish you could go back and make good with all of them, but um, none of them said, "Yeah, they were, they were, they had a miserable collegiate career." You know, they all, they all came back. Almost all of them came back last year for my retirement party, and or two years ago. And, um, it's 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 just how the culture of of athletics has changed. Yeah, when I, I look back at old, was an anomaly. Yeah. Um, in that sense, although even though you know he comes across as this really nice, wonderful coach, he was tough. He was he was unwavering. He had his non-negotiables. In the midst of all of this and everything, um, the change in how you were coaching, you were diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and that's when my coaching really became, I think that's when I really became the coach that I was proud to be. Um, I was diagnosed in 2014, and I, as soon as I was diagnosed, I was petrified. And in this state of mental chaos, um, of really not knowing what, how many more days I had to live, um, how painful was it going to be? I heard in that moment, be anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. And when I speak about this in my speaking engagements, I always tell people, you know, you can translate this as the universe speaking to me or cosmic energy. I translate it as God speaking to me. And um, this this commandment of be anxious for nothing but grateful for all things didn't really sit well with me because how was I not supposed to be anxious? Mm-hmm. I just got diagnosed with a potentially fatal disease. And the next day I went to my oncologist and she said to me, if I had gotten diagnosed 10 years earlier, they would have sent me home, said, we have nothing for you, go get your affairs in order. Wow. And that because I was diagnosed in the year 2014, if I chose to get chemotherapy for a year, they knew it was going to work and that they could cure my cancer. And in that moment, I understood how I was going to obey the commandment of being anxious for nothing by being grateful. I didn't have to get chemotherapy. I got to get chemotherapy because I lived at a time that had Mm. the chemo. And I was so excited and grateful to be able to get chemotherapy for a year. I actually called it going to my chemo spa 
because hmm. a spa is someplace you go to get better. And switching that one word, have to, to get to. I didn't have to get chemo. I got to get chemo. I didn't have to have surgery. I got to have surgery. Switching that to my life. I don't have to go to work. I get to go to work. Yeah. And on and on and on really changed every moment of my life. Love that. For the better. I was going to ask, what does gratefulness look like in the midst of adversity? But those are just some great answers already to that question there. And uh, what a great outlook. Because chemo is not an enjoyable experience, right? But we can go through all sorts of experiences still with gratefulness. Right. Because you don't, you don't have to do it. You get to do it. I, I, was, I have a young 13-year-old gymnast. She's like a little Miss Val fan, and she's from New York, and she has a really aggressive form of, of arthritis. And <clears throat> she's actually being admitted into the hospital today for anywhere from two to four weeks to try to get a handle on this and some very aggressive treatment for it. And I asked her, I said, how do you feel? And she goes, to be honest with you, I'm scared. And I said, totally understandable. But please don't lose sight of the fact that you don't have to do this. You get to do it because you live at a time and you live in a state that has this for you. There's, there's a possibility this is really going to be able to help you. So when that, that fear takes hold of you, just keep reminding yourself how fortunate you are that you you get to be in that hospital. How did your oh, that's hard for a thirteen year old, but right, <laughs> it really is true. How else was your faith impacted, or how did it grow throughout your experience? Oh, tremendously. Um, anytime I think, not I think I know because I've done so much reading and I have experienced it myself. But anytime that you you choose to live your days in gratitude and you keep hitting that gratitude button, um, you know, the research shows that it does change the brain chemistry and it, and it increases the dopamine. And um, it, every single moment, especially when I look outside and I look at the wonders of what God created, I just, Every single moment that I'm, I'm looking outside right now, I'm so grateful and so thankful for the life that I have. Um, and we don't have to look far. We don't have to look to another country to see that there are so many less fortunate that we are. Um, it really, you know, helped going through this whole COVID and quarantine, you know, that I don't have to, I don't have to stay at home. I get to stay at home because I actually have a home. Mm-hmm. How cool is that? I actually have food. I you know, thankfully, I don't have to worry about how I'm going to make my mortgage. And like I said, we don't have to work, look to third world countries to feel how, the impact of that. We just have to look around the corner. Um, so it's that, that one phrase, Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing and grateful for everything, is like a little elixir <laughs> that can take <laughs> the edge off Nice. when life gets hard. What's amazing about you and what I'm listening to is you're you're no longer coaching gymnastics, you're no longer in that world, but you're still just by speaking, it's a new form of coaching and helping guide people through their lives. Thank you. That's one of the reasons why I chose to retire. Um, I felt like I had gleaned so much wisdom, not just of how to live an impactful and, and grateful and hopeful life. And joyful life, but also, I mean, I'm I enjoy sharing all the ways I screwed up because um, none of us, 
you know, go through life pristine. <laughs> and to be able to share with people the things that I did that, you know, I'm not so proud of, but I learned from and and why I did those things. You know, why did I coach like that back then? Why do parents sometimes cross the line of tough love? What is crossing the line of tough love? You know, what is, what is, how does it, when is it crossing the line of tough love and accountability? Because as parents, you need to have to raise children to be accountable. You need to show, you can't be a yes parent. You're not going to raise it an, a productive human being. And it's the same thing in coaching. What is that line? You have put a book together, uh, Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. Tell us about that book and why you chose that title. I chose the book. I, was, I chose the book because I started being asked to do a lot of speaking. And every time you speak, people say, where can I buy your book? And I didn't have a book. <laughs> and I really, I was so, it was so clear to me, why am I going to write a book? Because everything that I have to say has already been said. Like any, anything that is truth in the world has been passed down since the dawn of man. There's nothing new. And finally, one of my girlfriends said, but we all need people in our generation to put the, the truth in our vernacular so that we can better understand it. So I said, okay, I'll write a book. So I start writing this book of how I figured out how to be a successful leader. And halfway through it, I told my co-author, I said, I can't write the book. And he goes, why not? And I said, because people are going to expect all this wisdom from the seven-time national gymnastics champion, and they're going to see how unorthodox a lot of my ways were, and they're going to realize I'm a total whack job. And my co-author goes, Mistel, you are a whack job. That's why you have to write the book, because you give all of us permission <laughs> to be ourselves and release our inner whack job. I so, like that. <laughs> because, I'll write the book. So I'll write the book, and <clears throat> it really is, it's a really easy read, um, but a lot of people have given me really good feedback that there are little nuggets in it, you know, little things like don't ever try to be perfect because perfection doesn't exist. Just if you go through your life trying to be 1% better in one area of your life today, imagine the compound effect of that, even within a week, let alone a lifetime. So I write the book and I get to the chapters that I'm writing about Coach Wooden because Coach Wooden and myself and my husband became, he and his family, we, we became like family. We were more than friends. He was more than my mentor. We literally were as close as family. And I got to telling a story in the book um, about Coach Wooden. And Coach Wooden lived to be 99 and nine months old. Wow. And the last few years that I was with him, every single time I was with him, somebody would ask him, you know, Coach, you've lived an impeccable life. Do you have any regrets? And every single time, Coach would cross his arms and his his blue eyes would get teary and he would say, you know, I outlived my wife by 25 years mm-hmm. and um, my wife loved dance and I've never been a good dancer and I've always been very, very shy. So I never danced with my wife. And if I had it to do all over again, I would dance with my wife because I know now that if people would have seen me dancing, they wouldn't have said, oh, look at that old clumsy man. 
they would have seen a couple deeply in love mm. dancing together. He said, so yeah, if I have one regret, I would dance with my wife. So the title of the book is an homage to Coach Wood and Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. That's making this uh, non-dancer a little teary-eyed. And I'm <laughs> just thinking back to a few weeks ago at a wedding, and I didn't dance with my wife to the slow song because I can't dance. So <laughs> yeah. I'm going to... You know what? My, my husband is the same. He's very shy, and he's not born with a sense of rhythm. Yeah, yeah. But ever, ever since we were with Coach Wooden, even before I wrote my book, when we were with Coach and he heard Coach tell that story, when we go to weddings, and he asks me to dance, he kind of gets this little gleam in his eye, and he goes, it doesn't matter if I can't keep a beat. I want to dance with my wife. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. For people who want to learn more about you, uh, how do they go about doing that? Um, My website is officialmissal.com, and I produce what I call musings. There's most people call them blogs. But when I started doing them, I didn't think that I was cool enough to blog. So I had to come up with a different word. So it's just some of my thoughts about the world and how I figured out coaching and all of that. I am not actually heavily on social media. I used to be, but I gotten, I don't know, I got really kind of disgruntled by the negativity that's out there a lot. And so I took a break from social media, and I'm really enjoying the break. (laughs) So I'm really just concentrating on my website. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the interest, and I hope you have a great day. Thanks again for joining us today on Connections. Remember, if you want to listen to the podcast version of this show, you can do that by visiting podcastville.ca or wherever else you get your favorite podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.